Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so we're going to pick up again in Genesis 13 tonight. As I like to do, and it's the old teacher in me, I like to review Genesis to so far in, in the story. Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, we saw the creation of the world, and humans fall away from what God has in store for them, which was to walk and talk with him in the garden. Uh, but humans choose their own plan instead. So they're cursed in Genesis 5, in Genesis 6, 7, through nine, we see that uh, there's there's this other group of evil angels that are trying to corrupt the human race, um, and God stops them essentially by bringing a flood to the earth and rebooting with uh, with Noah, whose family hadn't been corrupted yet. Um, and then Genesis 10 and 11, we see humans clustering instead of spreading out over the whole earth. And in that, God then stops them from doing that by changing their language, and they start to spread all over the earth. And then we see Genesis zoom in on this story of this guy named Abram and his family, and he, uh, and that's where we pick up. We're in the middle of kind of the first Abram, Abram narrative. He has gone to, he's left his country like God told him to. He was supposed to leave his family, but he brought Lot and his whole crew with him. Um, he was supposed to leave his father's house, but he delayed with his father in uh, in uh, in Turkey for decades. Um, his dad dies, so he kind of takes off. The promise, if he does what God tells him to do, is that God says, I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in all the families of the earth, you shall, shall be blessed. So Abraham eventually leaves. He takes this step of faith not knowing where he's going. And God seems to work with that. He doesn't follow him perfectly, but he tries to follow him. And I don't know why, but I've been sitting on that thought all week, even though I was from last week's study. Just the thought of we don't have to follow God perfectly. We just have to follow God. And we think we have to do the right thing to follow God, and we just have to do the thing to follow God. And he kind of works with us from there, and he takes broken people and he turns them into his people. Um, and that makes it so that God gets the glory and not Abram's great planning because Abram didn't design a nation or plot to make a nation or anything like that. So we're going to see more of that tonight. But first we see Abram as, you know, he's following the Lord, but he's new in following the Lord. And we see these kinds of moments. And, I, you know, most of the people in this room were not necessarily new at following the Lord, but Abram was, and he screws it up big time. He gets to Canaan where he's supposed to go. God talks to him again. But then he looks around and there's a famine in the land and he starts to worry. He's got all these sheep and herds and famine means he's going to lose some ground with that. So Abram starts to doubt that God's going to support him and he starts to go for greener pastures and those greener pastures are down in Egypt. So that's kind of where we find uh, Abram. He's lost it all. The pharaohs took his wonderful, beautiful wife um, who's supposed to have the children that starts a nation that blesses the whole earth. So there's Abram, he's in Egypt, he's got wealth, he's got all this stuff the world has to offer, but he's lost his beautiful wife, which he's lost everything at that point, because with his wife goes essentially God's plan for him and what's going on, and, and Abram, I, I just imagine it had to be horrifying. Like, who would have thought that the Pharaoh would grab his wife, not just some prince or something like that? And I was reminded of Matthew 16, 26, and it says... For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Or what shall a man exchange for his own soul? And in this case, Abram's exchanged a little bit of wealth for his soul, and he's given it up. So that's where we find Abram, and we start in in chapter uh, 13. Uh, Ab uh, the Pharaoh finds out. It doesn't say how he finds out. I think that's kind of a miracle that the Pharaoh finds out about this. Um, God doesn't talk to him while he's in Egypt, and, and, but that doesn't mean God doesn't act. So somehow the news gets to Pharaoh that Sarah's his wife and Pharaoh kissed him out. So, and he says, not only get out of here, but Pharaoh says, take all your junk and get out of here too. 
because they were getting plagued and, and the Pharaoh didn't want the curse of Abram and his family in Egypt. Um, so he kicks them out. So where Abram went for greener pastures, what he got was he almost lost everything um, and the world spits him back out. So that's where we start in 13.1. Then Abram went up from Egypt. Note that it says up instead of north. I like that. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. And Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So when he first comes in, he goes to that hill of Morah. Then he moves south to Bethel and Ai. And then he goes south to the Jerusalem hills. And then he goes down to Egypt. So he is going back to this place where God talked to him, which was between Bethel and Ai. And it's another, and he builds another altar there. So he goes back to this place where God talked to him. He goes down to Egypt. He doesn't hear from God. So he returns to it. Which is a nice thought when you have gone a season and you don't feel like God's talking to you. He's not speaking into your life. You have this dry season. Try to go back to where you were when you last felt that presence of God. And for a lot of people, that means that there's been things in your life that you've let go that used to be things that brought you to God. Like worship, like getting time out in the woods, like going camping with your family and friends and that sort of thing. Those kinds of moments when you find that God is really talking to you. For some reason, life goes on and we stop doing those things that brought us close to God in the first place. So I think it's kind of cool that Abram goes straight up to Bethel and Ai um, and goes back to where it all starts and goes back to where it begins. Verse 4, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So even though he stumbles, he returns to God. He goes to this place where he built a, 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 a an altar. And then because we got Bethel and Ai, I thought I'd look those up. Bethel, of course, we know is the house of God because we go to Bethel. Ai is the house of ruin. So it's some place between God and ruin that Abram kind of sets up and makes camp, camp here. And it's somewhere where we live. We're somewhere between heaven and hell. And that's the kind of mix of where we're at. And I just like all the imagery that comes with the story of this. So there's still one more thing that he has to take care of. And that was he had to leave his father. His father died, so he left his father. But God kind of took care of that for him. He left the country, but then he went too far. God brought him back to the country, so God kind of took that care of that for him. So on that third point, God's going to take care of that too. He's supposed to leave his family. And Lot was this uh, grown man who was kind of, Abram had kind of taken under his wing uh, or taken, uh, taken with him on these things. So verse 5, Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together. Remember, there was a famine. For their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So they're trying to live in this land that other people are living in too. And they can't get along. There's not enough room for the livestock to graze. So the shepherds start fighting with each other. One of the key indicators here is that we're being held back from God's command. One of the things you can see when you're outside of God's will is this, the degree of stress goes up in your life and the degree of strife just starts to appear all around you. Also, the witness of Abram is starting to go out because this little side note that the Canaanites and the Perizzites are watching them means their witness isn't very good because they're fighting with each other. So you got these pagans saying, what kind of people are these that worship Yahweh when they just fight with each other? So his witness is kind of shot and it's not good. So in verse 8, Abram says to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren or we are brothers. They're not brothers. So this is the first time we see the use of the word brother in the Bible. And um, we use it a lot in the church. At least some churches use it. It's part of some traditions. But it's the use of the word brother that doesn't mean a biological connection because we know Lot is his nephew, not his brother. It's the use of the word brother that has to do with a spiritual brotherhood or a connection between two people. We'll see sisterhood later on too. This idea of strife is something I sat on a lot because it seems like the closer you get to God, the more the things of this world kind of rise up around you. And the more you have to kind of pray for that, deal with that, work with that. And I thought of another spot where you see two people split in the Bible. If you turn your Bibles to Acts 15... And I'll pause long enough to turn there. 
Steph's been coaching me. She says, you got to wait for people to actually turn before you start reading. Okay, I'm going to start at verse 36 in Acts 15. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, now let us go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Um, Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted they shouldn't take John Mark who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. It's interesting here that you see this moment of strife between two brothers in the faith and it's actually not a horrible thing because this sets up one of the great missionary journeys that's going to happen for both of these people. In other words, they just doubled their missionary power. So it wasn't a horrible thing, and, it, and it's a really Christian theme that sometimes when there's strife between you and another brother or sister, you just part ways. And to do that, the world does that in anger, but we see in the Bible examples where people do that without anger. They don't go away mad, they just go away, and they go different directions. And that's okay to go different directions because it's part of how God splits and divides and moves people in the right direction. I don't know if that's what's happening with Abram and Lot, however, because we're going to see Lot kind of wants to pick a different way of life than Abram does. And he's not necessarily following the Lord. Um, But if your brother has something against you, parting ways is not a horrible thing. We see that again and again through the Bible. Matthew 18, 15, Luke 17, 13, Romans 12, 18. If you want to deal with people that you're having struggles with, You pull them to the side, you talk to them, and that's always the harder conversation. Everything in us wants to avoid that conversation. But you put things on the table and you just say, here's what's wrong, here's what I think is going on, and then you let people deal with it as they want. Um, But it's a consistent kind of piece. And our job, in Romans 12, 18, that last one I mentioned, if it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Don't avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath for it's written vengeance is mine. I will replace as the Lord. It's not even our job to get mad at people when we struggle with them. And it's okay to just part ways. Um, So in the middle of the fight, we see Abram's a little different right now. Of course he's different. God just saved his wife in Egypt and he got to leave with all his stuff and God's going to be talking to him again. So Abram's a changed man. And we're going to see this a few times in his life where he reacts really differently. So Abram shows a lot of kindness to Lot in verse 9 and says, Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Abram's showing a lot of maturity here and growth. um, And he makes it right with Lot by giving Lot the choice. You can pick whichever path you want. Whichever one you think is going to be better, you can have it. So it takes a lot of faith that God's going to still work this out because to the left is Canaan, to the right is going back the way they came down into the Jordan Valley. So God has to turn Lot's head, and I think that's what's going on in verse 10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. So Lot goes east, he picks this area that he thinks is amazing. That amazing land is not going to be so amazing after Sodom and Gomorrah. And frankly, after the Jordan starts to salinate and cause the Dead Sea. So he's picking the area that's currently now dead. It's not very good land at all. But back then, apparently it was. Verse 11, then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan and Lot journeyed east and they separated from one another. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities and plains and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful And this is an interesting phrase, against the Lord. So they actually weren't just being pagans. They were actually actively trying to be against the Lord God with what they did. Lot's not in the city here, but notice in the Hebrew, um, even as far as Sodom, uh, could actually be interpreted as towards Sodom or even to or even up next to. In other words, his tents were facing Sodom. He had this passion for the city life and what was going on there, or he was actually literally putting his tent on the outside of the wall, which would keep him out of the wind. 
So he's parking his tent right outside the city and then grazing his sheep around the city itself. Lots of Christians do this. I see it all the time. I think it's one of the big struggles at Bethel for a lot of students that are there is that you have this idea that you want to follow the Lord, but half of your heart is still facing the world and what the world has to offer. You're still soaking in all these things that the world kind of shows you. And frankly, I can see why people toy with sin. There's some appeal to it. Um, it, people wouldn't do it if they didn't think it would be fun or if it wouldn't be enjoyable to them or if it wouldn't add to their life. The problem with sin isn't its appeal. The problem is with sin is the results of what happens when you go down that path. Um, and it can be the most innocent thing, but when you turn yourself towards the nature of this world, it essentially leads to nothing. So Acts 14, 15, you don't have to turn there. It's just one verse. I'll read it. We also are men with the same nature as you, and we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. It's not even sin that we're supposed to turn from. We're supposed to turn away from useless stuff, things that don't add to our life. And things that do add to our life are really clear. Brothers and sisters in the faith, sharing the message and gospel of Jesus Christ, loving our neighbors as ourselves, and loving God with our whole heart, mind, and soul. It's not a magic formula what we're supposed to be doing, but it's the hardest thing in the world to do because then the new Marvel movie is coming out. And all you want to do is go see the new Marvel movie because it's amazing, but it's a useless thing. It's not really worth our time. The problem is we give our heart to those kinds of things, whatever it might be for you. Um, But if it's not in the kingdom, it doesn't actually add more life. It just adds expectation that doesn't usually pay off with a happier heart. So the next time we see Lot, he's not only living in this city, the following time we see Lot, he's the governor of this city. So he, that little bit of toying with the world is going to pull him in further and further as we see him reappear. Lot's going to be sorry for this, but these choices are going to be things that he regrets, um, and he doesn't really see it coming. So here's the update. Now that Abraham is, he is in the land of Canaan, he is without his family, and he's away from his dad. He's met all three criteria of the original thing at the beginning of verse 12. So in verse 14, God actually speaks to him again. He's back in God's will, and God starts to talk to him again. And the Lord said to Abram, and the Lord said to Abram, by the way, grammatically speaking, the word and there, this is actually part of the same sentence as the last verse. Um, So we should be there. He built an altar, and, and he built an altar there to the Lord, and the Lord said to Abram. So it's he's recommitting his life to the Lord. I think a lot of young Christians do this too. They recommit themselves to the Lord multiple times. So they kind of fall back to the world. Then they recommit. Then they fall back. Then they recommit. And I think that's actually probably a healthy thing because we see it in the Bible. That making ourselves more and more Christ-like actually is cyclical and it takes time and it takes some effort. Anyways, that's just the word and. Um I like the fact that at the very beginning in Genesis 1, it said God was hovering over the waters. Remember that phrase? To me, this is the same personality. Because as soon as this happens, as soon as Abram goes to the altar, God's talking to him. It's like God was hovering over Abram the whole time. Even in Egypt, when he wasn't talking to him, he was still there. There's that footsteps poem. You know, you weren't there, Lord. And he's like, the only reason you see only one set of footsteps is because I was carrying you. And I think sometimes God cares for us, even if we don't hear from, he's still looking out for us in our life. And I think that's just a beautiful thought. So And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and your descendants forever. The hill between Bethel and Ai has an amazing view, and you can see a lot of territory. You can see roughly 300,000 square miles from this spot because you go down into the Jordan Valley and all the area where Lot was, and you can see up to the Golan Heights. You can see all the way to the Mediterranean, and you can see going down again, you can see the, the deserts or the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula. So when he looks north, south, east, west from this particular spot, he's seeing a lot of territory. Moab in the east, Golan Heights in the north, Mediterranean in the west, and Jerusalem in the desert desert lands to the south. This promise, this amount of territory, has yet to be fulfilled. Israel has never really occupied that much territory. Maybe under David and Solomon, because we don't know exactly what territory they had there, 
um, but it's but it's close. And the idea of all of Moab would be into Jordan and Syria and some other areas there. So we don't have a timeline. Notice it just says, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. We don't know when that timeline starts, but we know that forever happens to go longer than Abraham's alive. So there's some indication that God will there is life after death. Abraham will be around for a long, long time or forever. So that tree of life is still around. Verse 16, and I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that a man could number the dust of the earth. Then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. Um, This idea that you can't number things is... It's one of the funny, so Jewish people are kind of funny and they have some funny traditions and they come from really obscure references and things like this. So there are some Orthodox Jews today that won't count things because of this verse. And that's a perfect example of taking, I think, a verse out of the Bible and totally misconstruing it and being ridiculous with it. Um, It's the kind of thing that Jesus called them out on. So they won't necessarily count um, in things. So if you try to number people off in a room, they won't say one, two, three, four. A lot of Orthodox Jews will say, I am not number one. And then Katie would say, I'm not number two. And I'm not number three. <laughs> so they have other ways of doing this with like shekels and that sort of thing. And they have all these tricks to where they can still count, even though they believe they shouldn't count. And so even in the spirit of whatever they're doing. Anyways, I just thought that was funny. All right. One of the things they thought was interesting when you look up the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's whole scrolls that, scrolls that describe between verse 17 and verse 18 that fill that gap with this entire the travels of Abram so all these this walking around the land in the Dead Sea Scrolls they actually have narrative that talks about him walking around the land and doing all this stuff and whatnot Um, note that Abram doesn't build cities he doesn't build a temple he doesn't build a home he just walks in the land so he's supposed to be the champion of these nations but at the end of the day he's just a nomad and he's just walking around. And I think it's kind of cool that Jesus does that too. He doesn't really have this massive home or build this empire. God doesn't ask too much of Abraham then. So the first test of faith is wasted and God redeems it. His second test of faith with Lot, he does a little better and they part ways. For us, he only asks us that we need to turn from our ways and turn to God way, God's ways. So, so again, the, the ask here for Abraham is walk around the land. That's all I ask of you. And I think sometimes our job is to just do what God tells us to do. And it's not as amazing as we think it should be, but it's just simple, basic, live your life. You think of the thousands, if not millions of people that have lived simple Christian lives where they love their families, they love their kids, they did their duty, and God seems to grow the church all over the earth through that. Katie? You got him? So that application for us, I think, is that what a small thing. You look at Abram and the father of our faith and what a mighty thing he's going to do and how the earth, the history of the earth is going to change with this guy. But what God asked him to do is walk around. And God's going to do the rest. And I just thought, I don't know, I'm dwelling on that point a little bit because God, us, I think of us, very small things. Turn away from the world, turn away from your own selfish stuff and turn to God and God can work with that and do amazing things. So verse 18. Then Abram moved his tent, and he went and he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron. These are not the Shechem terebinth trees. These are terebinth trees in Mamre, which would be down by um, Jerusalem, just south of Jerusalem. So a different spot than last time we talked about. But again, the terebinth trees are where all the pagan worshipers would have set up their idols and their poles, and he goes right into the middle of pagan worship. It's like going into downtown New Orleans, and he sets up an altar right in the middle of it. And I love that image, and I've always liked um, in our church network when people buy out like an old disco or they take a bar and they renovate it and turn it into a church. And I've always liked that image of just plopping a godly place right in the middle of where people's lives are being destroyed. And I think that's pretty cool because that's what Abram does. He just sets up these altars right in the middle of pagan worship, which is gutsy as heck because these people did human sacrifice, right? So... 
we're going to see later Abram has a small army under his command, and that's probably for protection um, because he's living in a pretty, an area that would be really hostile to this. So God follows God, or Abram follows God's call, and God is, speaks three times to Abram. The first time God speaks to Abram, he moves partially, but he doesn't get in the land, so God just gives him directions. The second time God talks to him, Abram's got Lot with him, so God gives him the promise of the land, but he doesn't promise him details on the family. The third time God talks to him, he's both in the land, and God gives him the full promise and starts to outline what his family is going to look like, that they're countless and outside of number. So we see a change in Abram here, and he's building altars again. He built his first one in Morah, built his second one in Bethel Ai, third one in Jerusalem, and now he's built a fourth altar in Hebron. So the guy's planting altars all over the place and teaching people how to worship God, and he's filling the land. So Abram settles where he hears God, despite the prospects, despite the fandom, despite the famine that's in the land. And Abram does this, and he starts to be shaped by the Lord. Um, this reminds me of Jeremiah 29:11, which most people, this is one of the things you memorize in, in youth Sunday school. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Uh, this is the Lord's de- declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for your disaster, to give you a future and a hope. To what degree do we not experience the full blessings of God because we don't know this carefully, that God has plans for us and we need to just do as well? Uh, Genesis 14. And it came to pass, so a new narrative starts, and it came to pass in the days of Amphrael, king of Shinar, which is Babylonia, Arioch, the king of Eleazar, which is Babylonia again, Cared. Oh, goodness. Kertoleomer, king of Elam, that's in Persia, the hills to the east of Babylon. And Tidal, king of Goyam, or king of nations, it might be how it's interpreted in your Bible. Nobody knows where that king is really from. Uh, and I think that's why they just put nations. He's the king of some nations, multiple cities. That they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bershev, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemember, king of Zeboim, and king of and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, the Jordan Valley. All five of those kings would have been in the where Lot was in that Jordan Valley area. So all of these are joined together in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Um, those commentaries, that is Zoar and that is the Salt Sea. Most Bible scholars believe that's Moses, that the names had changed when Moses was putting all this together and gathering the scrolls into one book. Um, and that he would have added that commentary because the names would have changed. Twelve years they served Kedor Laomer. I should have practiced that more. Y'all can say it how you please. And in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And the word thirteen actually means rebel in Hebrew. Um, So it's an evil number. Uh, Thirteen is a Jewish number of rebellion, and it's known that way too. Every use of the word Satan and all of Satan's different names throughout the entire Bible are divisible by 13. If you like math, the Bible is perfectly mathematical in that idea. It's why we consider 13 to be an unlucky number, and it's the year of the first war that the earth has seen. So law of first mention in Genesis, this is the first war we've seen between kings. It's not the first time we've seen people killed. Um... Since this first war, if you know, roughly speaking, if there's been about 4,000 years of human history, there's only about 220 of those years where we don't have war happening somewhere on the planet. So war is an in, indicative or characteristic of human existence across the planet. It's gotten worse. In the 1900s of lo- alone, we haven't had one day without war on the planet. Somewhere on the planet in the 1900s, somebody has been at war and in the 2000s. Um, Not only that, but in the 1900s, we had our first world wars, where wars actually span the planet. The wars have gotten worse, they've gotten messier, and they've gotten to be more horrendous in how we do things to people and what we do. Um, Council on Foreign Relations today, if you look around the world, there's 25 wars on the planet right now, and we barely hear about them in the news here in the United States. There are people dying and getting killed all over the place. Um, the odd part about the Council on Foreign Relations is the wars are color-coded by how much of a threat they pose to the United States. 
So the degree to which we look at the world through our own lens is absolutely stunning. It's like we're deafened to the idea that this stuff is horrible. At the same token, I think the U.S. tries to determine which of these wars do we need to be involved in and which don't we. So people get killed based on how much value they have to us. And it's interesting as, as to the degree to which the United States has Christian principles as part of how we think and do foreign relations. I think it's interesting that we're a country that e even is concerned with any of the other wars on the planet and that we try to stop some of them is a good thing. Uh, that we can't stop all of them is, is just, it's been 4,000 years of war on this planet. And that's kind of this one of these great tragedies. So here we are. They've been enslaved by Ketelamander. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> I'll say it different every time. And then they decide, we're done with this. We're going to stop paying taxes to the Babylonians. So they gather their four armies, and they fight against these five armies. In the 14th year, Ketelaomer and his kings that were with him came and attacked Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, and Zuzium and Ham, and Emem in Shava and Kiriathim, and the Horeites and their mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is in the wilderness. And then they turned back and came to Enmisphach, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the countries of the Amicalites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazan Tamar. In other words, they went up the Tigris and Euphrates and they followed the same route that Abraham did with his family. They came, and then they turned back and came right down and started working through the Holy Land. So these, this mighty army of the Babylonians just starts marching through, leveling cities. Most of these cities hadn't even been found until the 1900s. And this is another example where archaeology doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible gives meaning to archaeology. So they went and started looking for these cities and sure enough, they found them all along the way and they can use radar to start detecting these things. And they found five or six cities that were never rebuilt. They were totally decimated around this period of time. And they know what their names are because they start digging and then they find coins and go, oh, look, there's Imam. And we just found it. But it was, again, the Bible that told them where to look and what to look for. Otherwise, they'd just be finding a coin with Imam on it and they'd have no idea what that means. So this is the only historical or ancient text that gives them any sense of meaning as to what those things are. So they go around, they never rebuild these. I'm sorry, it's 1935 when they started digging up those cities. Um, they found three of these names on one tablet. So they actually found evidence that these kings had united and started to march together and work together on things. Um, and they found these sorts of things. Verse eight, and the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim against Kedor Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, the king of nations, Am, I don't know why they say all these twice, Am Raphael, the king of Shinar, and Arioach, the king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains, uh, the asphalt pits could also be interpreted as tar or slime pits. Interesting thing, when J.D. Rockefeller wanted to start finding more oil on the planet, he read this verse, legend says, and he started buying up land in this area by the Dead Sea on the other flip side because it says there were tar pits. So he started buying up a bunch of land. He sent all his people out there. And a large portion of J.D. Rockefeller's wealth came because, lo and behold, they found open pit uh, petroleum pits all over this area. So tar pits or slime pits, there's very few places on the earth where the petroleum actually bubbles up to the surface. You don't even have to put a well in. You can just start cleaning it up and, and using it and taking it back home. Uh, so that's, you know, um, just a side story. I like the mention of tar pits for this reason, and it's because... It's almost like God's daring us to go check this stuff out. Like he just puts these little things in there like they all died in the tar pits. They tried to run and they got caught in this stuff and go try to find it yourself and see what's out there. And then we do and it's kind of interesting. I also think it's interesting that a lot of these things have been rediscovered in the 1900s as we get technology to look under the earth because you got to go down 40, 50 feet to start finding these towels. Um, so the technology to do that's just been... Um, more recently in history available and it's right about the period of time when the message of God is, needs that validation. 
Verse 11, then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions. So they came and stole their stuff and went their way. And they also took Lot, um, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. So Lot must have had a lot of stuff because they took it. And they actually marked the note. Um, I, I think it's kind of sad when you get to the point of life when you're known with your stuff. So it's not just Grant, it's Grant and his fancy guitar. And the stuff gets to be known as much as you. And in this case, we have Lot and his stuff. In other words, Lot was known for all the things he'd accumulated versus his character and who he is. And that's a sad place for Lot to be in this point. So in verses 3 to 12, the kings of the east win this battle. They kick some tail and they grab all their loot and they start taking off. Um, Note also here, this is the second time we see Lot. And notice that he's not outside the walls anymore. It says, who dwelt in Sodom. So now he's inside the city. And things aren't getting better for Lot as he moves towards the city. They keep getting worse. Verse 13, then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. This is the first time we see the word Hebrew in the entire Bible. Um, It's probably from his grandfather, Eber. Uh, Israel is used later because Israel is not born yet. And Hebrew then technically includes all the descendants from this point, which would actually include the Arabs. So um, later on that... We don't include Arabs with the Hebrews anymore, but it would have, biblically, it would be, they would be part of that group. For he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Abner. They were, catch this little piece, it's really interesting, and they were allies with Abram. Wait a second, where did Abram get allies from? So he's been hanging out by these trees of Mamre, praising the Lord God in the middle of pagan worship, and all of a sudden he's got two other major groups of people that are with him? And I think that's really cool. So he's making converts. He's spreading the word. This is the first clear evidence that Abram did have allies. That meant he must have had reputation in those who made relationships with the Canaanites. They're okay with their God-following friend. Um, I always liked it when I was in secular universities because I'd often be the only Christian guy in the room. And they would start ripping on Christianity or mocking it. And then they would remember I was in the room. And they'd say, oh, but Sean, we don't mean you. You're one of the Christians we like to hang around with. And I always think that, first of all, I'd be, well, great. I'm glad you have a Christian that you can handle in your life (laughs) and that you're not that thin of skin. But then my second thought is, well, maybe I should be ticking you off more. Like, I don't know. I don't want to blend in with you because look at how upset you are about everything in your life. You're not a happy person. So I don't want to be more like you. I want you to be more like me. And I think that's, how we bring converts into the faith. It happens really often. And I think it's really cool that when you just live your life joyfully, that you have people that come around you and see, see, I want to be more like that. And for Abram, all he has to do is say, well, then come worship the living God with me, the true and living God, and, and stop worshiping this other stuff and stop being so wicked and horrible and start being good. So he has allies. He has some new brothers. Abram sees the best in them, and he's building, I think, a new kind of godly family. Um, Lot, a contrast here between Lot and Abram, Lot gets closer to Sodom and it eats him alive and takes all his crap. (laughs) Abram gets closer to God and it's added unto him new family, new friends, new comrades, and he's blessed. And he note that he's not in the middle of this war. He's not in territory that's easy to march armies through. He's up in the hill country by Jerusalem. So he stays out of it and away from it. Verse 14, Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. This gives you a sense of how large that his household was. Like Abram was a moving city, right? It wasn't a small thing. It also helps to explain why he got a little scared when famine was hitting the land before, right? Um, so he had trained servants. That means that they were actually a standing guard. They weren't just farmers grabbing pitchforks. They'd have been ready to go and ready to fight. Um, with sheep and farmers, we see that a lot of times warriors come out of that lifestyle because you get big nasty things that attack your sheep. So to have trained people be ready to go hunt that lion down or kill that bear is actually a good thing to have. Um, Dan, where they chase him to, because it says it pursued him as far as Dan, that's in the northern part of Israel. So 
it's almost like they kind of turned around and started to go back, which means the Babylonian, the Persian kings would have understood that if they kept going south, they were going to hit this hill country, which would be hard to travel through. And then they eventually they would hit Egypt, who had its own army that could put up a decent fight, right? So he divided his forces. Oh, and to go up to Dan for Abram to chase him that far north, that's actually a 125-mile chase. So we're not talking about a small campaign here. When he grabs his 300 men, he would have been, a, you, this would have been a long endeavor to go at it. So he gets there, he divides his force against them, verse 15, and he and his servants attack them and he pursues them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus, at another 45 miles. At night, notes he, it says against them by night, which indicates that's not normal. You fight during the day in that time. Darkness would have been a really dangerous thing unless you're the tiny army fighting the big army. Then darkness is your friend because if everybody starts hurting each other, the odds are the larger army is going to hurt more of themselves. So Abraham uses wisdom, surprise, by splitting into two. He's going to have, it's going to seem like he's got a bigger army than he does. Historically, Israel is always outnumbered and they seem to always find a way to win which is kind of interesting. It's when they're scattered that they get beat up on and that you know people try to kill them all. But when they're united, when they're together, they tend to win battles. Abram comes by night, he attacks the army, he just beat he beats this army and just note this army just trounced through an entire sweeping area of the world and they just beat up five kings and Abram comes and takes them out with a few of his men. So this is almost miraculous at this point, but he's using these he's using night, he's using fearlessness, all that sort of thing. So he brings back all the goods, so he wins, barely mentions what happened, and also brought back his brother Lot. <laughs> and to me, that's a neat image. He goes into the tent where Lot's being held captive, and he's like, Lot, get your stuff, get up, we're here, we just saved you. And you know, it's one of those things where he's kind of grabbing him by the scruff of the ear and saying, just Lot, come on. And he gets all, and is good, Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And that could be in a really offensive line because it seems to divide women from people <laughs> at a first glance. You caught that quickly. <laughs> um, most people read that and interpret it because at this point, the world had gotten so wicked that women were being used differently than normal people were. There were women that were of a certain age and a certain appearance that they were used in a unique way that had made them have an actual different title here in this verse. And it's an indicator of just how bad the world had gotten. The kings, of course, we know were harvesting slaves. They'd har harvest slaves to do their big projects. So all around the ancient world, we see these massive big projects that were built on the backs of slaves and people that were just doomed to a life of pain and toil. Um, verse 17, and the king of Sodom went out to meet, meet him at the valley of Shaveth. <laughs> That is the King's Valley after his return from the defeat of Ketolaomer and the kings who were with him. So wait a second. The king of Sodom had just gotten killed in the tar pits, remember? So this is some guy who didn't even go out to fight that takes over the city after the army and the king get wiped out. See, he's this new, he's been king for a day and he decides to go out. It says he goes out to meet him at the Valley of Shaveh or Shaveh that is the king's valley. In other words, he gets up, hops on his donkey, and heads out from Sodom to go up to meet Abram, who's just come back from beating this king. Remember, Abram has all this stuff of lots, right? So this would-be new king steps up and decides he's going to... You think of the gall of this guy. King's Valley is by Jerusalem, so this is quite a ways from Sodom. Also note from this line something else that's kind of there. Note that Abram doesn't go back to Mamre, which is where he's kind of from at this point. He actually goes to this different place near Jerusalem. And we're going to see why he went there because he's going to meet with this guy named Melchizedek. And this is a really, there's tons of cool stuff that's kind of in this passage. Abram at this point in his life doesn't just go home and celebrate and keep all his loot. He's actually going to go see this guy who seems to be a priest of the living true God. So look at this, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, which by the way means king or prince of peace, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the most high, God most high, El Elhim. And he blessed him and he said, blessed be Abram of God most high, 
possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave them a tithe of all. So I'm going to unpack a few of these things. First of all, this is the first time we see bread and wine. Um, Throughout the rest of the Bible, when we see bread and wine, those are symbols of what in the Christian tradition we know of as communion. But at this point, they weren't communion. They were just breaking bread and having wine, but they still seem to have a ceremonial value because Melchizedek, the prince of peace, brings out this bread and wine to share with Abram. Heaven and earth and the Most High are both indicators that are making sure that we know as a reader that we're talking about Yahweh, we're talking about God, we're talking about Jehovah here. In other words, Abram had not only spread this faith in God to the Canaanites, but there were whole cities committed to God at this point. That's kind of amazing, and it makes you wonder what kind of character Abram actually had, what kind of a man of God he was. And we don't know where Melchizedek comes from. This is the first character in the Bible we see who doesn't have a beginning, and we don't see when he dies. He has no end. So a lot of Bible scholars do different things with this. Some people believe it's actually Christ, that this is a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Bible. Some people believe that um, Melchizedek is um, a descendant of Seth, who believed in God too, but we just didn't see the storyline because he's not part of the line of Messiah. Um, And some people believe he's a convert that Abram is elevated to this position of priest. In other words, Abram's training people in and giving them authority over him for accountability. So the Bible doesn't say what it is, so I won't say, but those are the three different beliefs on this. There's also an entire religion called Mormonism that believes that they are the line of Melchizedek and that they're they're priests in the line of Melchizedek and they'll get their own space planet someday. So there's whole different traditions that come around Melchizedek. If you're Mormons and listening to this, I don't mean to offend, but that's what it says in your book. So there's no beginning, there's no genealogy, there's no end, there's no history, which in Jewish tradition means you don't exist. If you don't have parents, if you don't have a genealogy, you're really not written in the book. So, and that's where a lot of people believe this is a Christophany. Either way, you've got an entire city of people serving under a priesthood that serves the Most High God. So we now see a city of people that serve God. Um, which is a first in the Bible. Melchizedek is not mentioned again until Psalm 110. Um, So if you flip forward to Psalm 110, it's in the middle of your Bible. If you're doing sword drills and you have a psalm thing, you just split right in the middle and it should be right there. Remember that when you were a kid? Got to count to 110 though. That's tough for some people. This is another curious little psalm. Before Jesus Christ, and we look at it in retrospect, and it's really easy to say, oh, like bread and wine, we get that. They're doing communion. Abram's coming back from war, and instead of going home to celebrate, he goes right to do communion with the priest. He's going to celebrate and give God the glory for this victory. He should, 300 against an army. He should be given God the glory. So look at Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, again, an interesting phrase, if you believe that there's only God and there's no Trinity, right? So how does the Lord talk to himself like this? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Then the Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies, just like Abraham is sitting there ruling in the midst of his enemies. You people, your people, shall be volunteers in the day of your power. You're going to have a whole church of people that volunteer to be your servants. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. And that's Grant's favorite song. I won't, you won't relent until you have it all. And then quote, this is what the Lord says to the Lord. You're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. When the law is established later, remember with Abram, there's no law. And when there's no law, there's no 12 tribes yet, which means there's no Levites. So in Jewish tradition, Levitical priests were the priests. To be a Levite priest, you had to show your genealogy and prove you were a Levite because nobody could serve in the temple if they weren't a Levite. So this is an odd thing because this, this implies that there's priests that aren't Levites. With By the time of Christ, that you were a Levite or you were not a priest. The Melchizedek thing was just, this was just a weird abnormality in the Old Testament. But it's also what gets referenced if you flip forward to Hebrews, 
Melchizedek gets mentioned again in Hebrews. It's Melchizedek that the writer of Hebrew uses to explain how we are all priesthoods in the in this new following of Jesus Christ. In the same way that Melchizedek was not a Levite, he couldn't have been, that the people of God could be serving God directly because they love the Lord. So Hebrews 1, verse 13, they're talking about Jesus being the Lord. And it says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, referencing Psalm 110, till I make your enemies your footstool. Hebrews 5.10, if you flip forward. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become so dull of hearing. (laughs) He goes on, they keep talking about Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews 7, verse 15. And it is yet far more evident in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, for he testifies. And he's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ proved himself a servant of God because he rose from the dead. And because he did that, he proved that he could be a priest even though he wasn't a Levite. Melchizedek was also a king. So he was a priest and a king. And then in the Judaic tradition, you couldn't do that. You had to be from the tribe of Judah to be the king. You had to be from the tribe of the Levites to be a priest. But in Melchizedek, you had both in one person, showing that it was possible and that it's still according to the law. So Melchizedek comes before the law. Jesus comes after the law. And there's a unity to it and a symmetry to it. You you could even say it's a giant biblical chiastic form, right? Where the two things match up. And that's the argument of Hebrews. And the whole book kind of makes that argument and builds it out over multiple chapters. That said, what do I think is cool about this? The whole Bible's tied together. Like Psalm 110 doesn't make sense until Jesus Christ, and neither does this weird character of Melchizedek and why Abraham is giving him tithe. It doesn't make any sense until you see Jesus Christ laying on. Last thing about this passage that's weird um, is that Abraham gives a tithe. So we see Abraham actually giving a piece of this. I love that he gives 10% of the loot to Melchizedek before he deals with the king of Sodom, (laughs) which I just think is, you know, God's going to get his share first. Now the king of Sodom, this is verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Think of the gall of this guy. I just want the slaves and you can have the stuff. But look at what Abram does and look at what just kind of an amazing guy he's becoming. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord. He made a vow. God most high, in case you don't get who I'm talking about, the possessor of heaven and earth. God owns everything. That I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, that I will not take anything that's yours, lest you can say, I've made Abraham rich, or Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre, his allies. Let them take their portion. So they should get they should get loot. But I love the fact that Abram's saying, not only am I going to stop with Melchizedek and give glory to God for this first, I don't want anything. I don't want any part of war. I don't want the loot from war. I'm not I'm not doing this for my own selfish gain. Um, and he's basically saying, you can have it all. You can have the people that used to live in your city. You can have the stuff. You can have all of that sort of thing. You can even have Lot. I just went to save him from a horrible death with these other people. It's so easy for us to take credit for what we've done, but it's so easy for Abram to take credit for what he did here and that he gathered the army. He had people ready. He had trained soldiers ready to go. He works hard. He does his thing. Um, And we do the same thing. We take credit. When things go well in our life, it's super easy to take credit for it. It's super hard to give glory to God for those things. Um, because we like to, we work hard and we feel like we did something. But a lot, even our ability to work or Tim's ability to go to the workout center, it's God that knit him together in the first place. Um, and if our bodies fall apart, we can't even get up in the morning without God. I still think breathing's a miracle. I don't do breathing. God does breathing. Like that's just something that happens. And I know there's scientific reasons for that and all that. But I just I still think the fact that I breathe isn't something I take credit for. I can't because I don't think about it. 
It's also easy to take stuff because toys are status. And we see Lot and his stuff being one of the first occasions where somebody's associated with their things. And materialism becomes a curse for humanity forevermore. Spiritually, we tend to take credit for what we do too. I think it's really easy for Steph to take credit for the fact that the neighbor wanted to, to go and visit her. And what an amazing thing to be able to go and pray with somebody days before they die. Like what an honor, right? And Steph could take credit for that. Um, but she doesn't because the Lord put us here. We know that. We couldn't get, we tried to buy houses, but we ended up here. And you think this is where God wants us to be for now. So that's, um, we wouldn't have even been in this townhouse and even known those folks if it wasn't for God working in our lives. So Lot befriends the world. He gets enslaved. Abram befriends God and he is free from the entanglements of Sodom. Lot gets all his loot and loses it. Abraham gets all the loot and gives it away. And we continue to see contrast between Abraham and Lot. This is where Abram is great. He honors God first. That I raised my hand in an oath means he made this vow before he even went off to war. He wants God to have the glory and nobody else can take credit for it. I know I'm being redundant, but I'm summing up. He doesn't want any piece of what the world has to offer and he rejects it again and again. He gives his tenth, he tithes to God. So we start to see these principles of life walking with God. He does good deeds without asking for rewards. And that's something that I just think is a staple of Christian life. Doing good things for people and not expecting reward or for that person even know that we did it, right? And he avoids entanglements with the world. He stays out of this getting wrapped up with this kind of stuff. So right after his win, <laughs> this is a big moment for Abram. He's doing really well. When we come back next week and we get into chapter 15, he's going to fail miserably again. <laughs> so we'll see that he's still not perfect. And again, it's this cycle. We get closer to God. We have these big moments. And often our greatest falls are right after we have a victory in Christ. And that's when we fall back into doing things and doubting the Lord and whatever. We come off this mountain peak and we go, and it's like we jump to the valley and it hurts when we land. Um, and Abram's going to do the same thing. And again, it humbles us because this is Abram. This is the father of Israel that's going to create a nation under him. And how much greater do we think we are if we're not going to, we're going to have the same kind of moments, the same kind of failures. So this week we got to see Abram succeed. Let's carry that through the week that as Christians, sometimes we do the right thing. Sometimes we nail it. Sometimes we succeed. Um, and then next week we'll come back and we can go through the depths of horrible decision-making all over again. And I'll try to keep next week PG-13 as it has many moments that could likely not be <laughs> PG-13, but we'll keep it. Maybe even go PG uh, for Hannah. We'll keep it there. We'll use code words for certain things. Fair enough? All right, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we love you. Lord, we are not perfect, and there is nothing we do that we can claim that we did on our own. You brought us into the world. You'll take us out. Everything on this earth is yours. You're the Lord of heaven and earth. You own all of it. So when we think about tithing, when we think about our resources and wealth, Lord, it's all yours. It's not even ours to be generous with. You have it from the beginning. Um, so Lord, we just pray that we can be like Abraham, that we can A, figure out how to listen to you. And when we can't figure it out, Lord, push us back the right direction like you got Abram out of Egypt. Uh, Lord, when we have strife with other people, teach us to just be peaceful as best we can, to not go away angry, but to just go away and, and go different directions. And that that's okay to do that in the faith, that you drive your people in different places. Um, Lord, help us not to lean our tent on the city of sin. Help us not to continue to fall into what the world has to offer, thinking it has something to offer. Lord, let us learn that lesson now, uh, that there's just nothing that the world has that's going to really make our life that much better. That what you have, the relationships we have, the love and the commitment and the faithfulness we have to each other and to other people in the body, Lord, that's where joy comes from. It's where our happiness comes from. And Lord, we get that from you. Uh, so Lord, help us turn to you. Help our eyes to be on you and fixed on you because uh, you're the maker of heaven and earth. Where else would we go, as Peter said? Who else are we going to follow? Uh, so Lord, help us to follow you. Help the word of God to sit in our heart we just got through two chapters of your voice in our ear, Lord. So help those things to stick this week, to stay with us, and help our discussion afterwards to be vibrant and to explore and understand our lives with you better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm -hmm.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.